Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I'm your host, and I don't really want to tell you where I am because it's a little beautiful here. There's flowers on the trees. There's actually a little pool outside my room. Um, and people will get jealous and they'll think I'm leading a kind of life I'm not really leading. So uh, you're really at home, David, is what you're telling us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's exactly. I thought you were in, in Sedona. I was in Sedona. I am still in Arizona. But uh, that's, en- that's enough. We've given them enough. As you can tell from what you've just heard, joining us from London, England is... Corey Shockey, are you in London, England, Corey Shockey? I am indeed. I am back between a trip to Princeton at the end of last week and a trip to Where I Dallas. saw Corey. Yay! And a trip to Dallas, Boston, Sedona, and Washington next week. Oh, you're going to Sedona too. Interesting. Um, uh, the McCain Forum? Uh, yeah, I was there because my wife was singing at a music festival. Ah, uh, beautiful. Um, yeah, it's a lot of spirulina and wheatgrass. You really got to be careful. Bring your own food. Guys, um, this is not fair. I just got an invitation to Kansas City. Yeah. <laughs> How come you guys are always going to cool places? Uh, well, we're cool. We're cool, Raza. Um, oh, wow. Well, I don't get that claim Corey. for myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, Corey's cool. We never had to pay to have friends. As you can tell, that's Rosa Brooks. Oh, David. I object in the strongest possible terms. Well, there's Rosa Brooks at her office at the Georgetown. Alone. Alone. By myself. Georgetown University Law Center, as we've learned, it's not a law school. Um, It just doesn't even call itself a law school. It's a law center. And... Um, somewhere in the rolling green hills outside of Washington, D.C., on his hundreds and hundreds of acres of estate, is Ed Luce, um, uh, who has been out culling herds of his specially hand-bred cattle or whatever you do when you're landed gentry. Oh, come on, David. He has people who do that kind of thing. Oh, that's probably true. I, I am just surveying sort of majestic uh, uh, herds of wildebeest sort of um, storm past my, my front lawn. See, David, proof he has people who do things like that because there are no wildebeest in rural Virginia. Well, except, <laughs> except at loose manner. Um, well, in any event, um, as they say, loose lips sink ships. And in that case, we're talking about Ed Luce's lips because he wrote... <laughs> well played, David. Thank you. Um, because in, uh, a few days ago, he wrote a column that I thought was really, really important. Now, he does this on a weekly basis, so I don't want to suggest that not every column is great, but but he started... He wrote a column about a subject that many people may have just flipped by because it was kind of China... And it was kind of trade and that's, you know, kind of pink newspapery FT kind of thing. <laughs> but, but, but it's actually a much bigger deal, both in terms of how the Trump administration views the international order and the relationship between the two biggest and most important countries in the world. And so maybe you could, you know, give us a little synopsis of what you were getting at there. Well, it's, it's very kind of you, David, to pick up on it. Um, uh, thank you. Um, I mean, the, the, this week uh, we, we're having an, uh, you know yet another round of talks between the Trump administration and Xi Jinping's administration in Beijing, with Lighthizer, Mnuchin, and others leading it. Um, 
God forbid, Mnuchin, but um, uh, it's going to result at some point or another in the coming days or weeks in a, a deal, the outlines and most of the contents of which we already know. And I'm not going to bore you with you know, some of the um, some of the details, but there is a sort of key fact in there that whatever it is China promises to do, you know, however much it promises to reduce the big bilateral trade deficit between the US and China, however much it promises to rein back on intellectual property theft and um, forced um, um, technology transfer from American companies to their Chinese joint venture partners. The one really, really important fact of this deal is that the enforcement mechanism is going to be entirely decided and administered by the Chinese and the Americans. Um, God knows how they're going to agree if one thinks the other is in breach, which is bound to happen very, very soon. Um, uh, under, the, under the terms of the deal, they will then be able to punish them by jacking up tariffs, whatever it might be. The point is, this now takes into the hands of the two largest economies uh, in the world, um, set to get even larger um, in the coming years, um, the enforcement of trade. And it means that the World Trade Organization, um, a, a key accomplishment of um, you know, American um, international architecture, is going to be left on the sidelines, completely irrelevant. It means that other countries um, are going to wonder whether there's any point um, in investing in building international trade rules for the 21st century, for the new digital economy, et cetera, that, that we're living in, if the two biggest economies in the world basically say, no, we're deciding the rules between ourselves, we're probably not going to agree between ourselves, but global order, global um, you know, appellate courts, et cetera, um, are for the birds. They, 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 they are no longer relevant. And this is not just a trade story. You know, this is a story of Trump believing that America first gets furthest when it acts alone, um, uh, which in turn, um, you know, is hastening the demise of the order that America built, which I believe, and I argue in this column, is actually game, set and match to China. Uh, China, uh, this suits China. China is the rising power. Um, as, as the existing one, America should be defending and upgrading and, and broadening the global system of rules. But Trump is accelerating its demise. And, you know, I think just to conclude, sorry, what's a, what's a rather long summary of my piece. I think that when this deal is announced, Trump's going to see it as a victory because the Dow Jones is going to go up. Um, there's going to be a relief rally in the market. Um, because uh, uh, you know a deterioration in U.S.-China relations would have been avoided, um, but this relief rally should not be believed. It should not be taken as anything more than a sigh of relief, because it will be another step um, forward for China and another um, relatively well hidden, um, self-inflicted wound by the United States. Well, first of all, that was a great summary, and secondly. If you'd like a briefer version of the summary, read the article. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Wasn't the summary at all. This is the extended essay. That's good. And you don't even have to pay, you don't even have to subscribe to FT now. See, guys, right. you no got a special bonus. Yeah, exactly. So, no, but, but the reason I thought it was a great article is that. It brought up a couple of things. Let me go first to Corey and then to Rosa. But it, you know, one of the things it brings up is that in the midst of negotiations like this that don't make headlines, really, really big, profoundly important things can happen. And if somebody doesn't call it to your attention, you won't know it. And the United States and China essentially throwing the role of the World Trade Organization under the bus is a really, really important thing. And then on top of that, as Ed points out, it is a really good thing for China, which doesn't want to be trapped in this multilateral system of, of standards and, and, and agreed upon dispute resolution mechanisms. And it's a really bad thing for the United States, which has spent 80 years trying to build up that system. 
And the final point, which Ed was even a little light on in his summary, but comes up clearly in the article, is regardless of how the market may view it initially, this kind of a dispute resolution formula is a formula for constant fighting because one side says, oh, you're breaking the rules, we're going to punish you. And then the other side says, OK, we're going to punish you. And it, 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 you know, you'll, you know, in a couple of years, we'll say, gee, why did we do this stupid thing? We should do it the other way. But, but for now, it creates the potential for enormous instability between the two most important powers in the world. Um, so, Corey, your take, and then Rosie, yours. So, um, I add my congratulations, Ed. I think it's a terrific article. And um, well, one thing that, that came out of the article for me that didn't make it into your summary was that this is not only bad for the liberal international order, it is terrible for Europe. Uh, which the, the European powers have also been enormous beneficiaries. And the one thing that the European Union is a superpower at is trade and regulation. Uh, and if the U.S. and China break, wrench the global order apart into two separate orders which I think we're not only seeing on trade policy, we are seeing with uh, supply chain renationalization. I think um, we, we are seeing with uh, cyber and internet issues where what has been a global order is going to be broken down into an American order and a Chinese order, and it's going to be very hard to uh, flip the switch between one and the other, and that will could have the possibility of turning European states and their greatest common strength as a union into rule takers, because there's not going to be agreed adjudication bodies. There aren't going to be agreed rules. What this is 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 uh, hegemony being imposed on middle powers. And I agree with David, the great genius of the international order that the United States worked so hard to wrench out of the ashes of World War II uh, was that it is a system that is largely voluntary because it incentivizes the cooperation of middle powers and it legitimates the strongest powers' actions by the voluntary involvement of the middle and weaker powers. And that's going to go away, and we are really going to wish we had it back if China continues to, to grow stronger and more dynamic and be, surpasses the United States as the rule setter of the international order. Totally agree. Great additional point. Rosa, this is, you know, kind of stealth warfare against the international rule of law, even as the president is in the midst of carrying out not so stealth warfare against the rule of law here in the US. He seems to be against the rule of law and against institutions. Um, that's a kind of, a, I mean, maybe, maybe he's the ultimate libertarian, or maybe he's just dumb. I, which is it? <laughs> or maybe both. <laughs> um, or just greedy. Or yeah, just they're corrupt. not exclusive. Yeah, I, I mean, no, the, when you get down to the basics of what is the rule of law, a phrase that we're always tossing around and net rarely stop to to define or to think about its its purpose, The in terms of goals of most conceptions of the rule of law, it's about ensuring accountability and and equality under law in terms of procedural fairness, in terms of substantive fairness, um, and ensuring that even those who are powerful uh, have to comply with the same rules as everybody else. And obviously, the you know powerful people who are reasonably enlightened get that in the long, long run, there are advantages to them to playing by the rules too. You know that 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 it helps everybody 
Um, if you're Donald Trump, though, and you're powerful and not that smart and particularly corrupt, you just think to yourself, wait, why would I want to have to play by the same rules as everybody else? Can't I can't I play by my own rules? So, sure, um, Donald Trump is absolutely hellbent on changing any rule that doesn't benefit him or getting rid of rules altogether when he can and weakening institutions that might attempt to say to him, hey, wait a second, Mr. President, even you have to abide by the rules. I, when it comes to the international system, my favorite recent example, and Corey and I were both just at a conference uh, on the rise of great power competition uh, a couple of days ago, and one of, the, one of the things that came up was um, the US is actually uh, seeking to withdraw from the Universal Postal Union Treaty. Um, and what is this, you ask? Well, um, this is actually the example that for years I've given my international law students um, as, a, as an example of why the skepticism they often feel about international law in some ways is misplaced, right? Because students always come in and they say, oh, international law, well, but there's, you know, there's no international court system that's akin to a domestic system like the Supreme Court of the United States, and, and there's no uh, international police force, and therefore international law isn't really law. And I always quote to them the, the line of the, uh, uh, um, you know, that almost all states abide by almost all their international law obligations almost all the time, because students tend to think international law is just, you know, do you, do you, do you, does a powerful state allow itself to be hemmed in on matters of war and peace? And they say, oh, look, but the U.S. invaded Iraq and Russia invaded the Ukraine. And the rejoinder I've always given them has been, yeah, you're, you know, you're right. When it comes to these big, huge existential issues, um, powerful states do what powerful states do. But even powerful states have enthusiastically allowed themselves to be constrained by international law in a zillion non-controversial ways. And I always say, you know, do you ever get a postcard from a friend or family member who's traveling in another country? Do you ever try to send a postcard from another country or to another country? And everybody, of course, says, well, yeah. And I say, well, you know, guess what? That's international law doing some things for you. That's the universal postal agreement. <laughs> you know, that the fact that you can put something in the mail at, at the little blue post, little blue mailbox a block from your house and a few days later, it'll pop up in, in China or in Nigeria or in France uh, is thanks to international law. And most international law is kind of boring, but it enables us to do things like that because states have to say, yes, we will honor each other's postage. We'll honor each other's stamps. You know, we will we will have a mechanism for doing stuff like that. And it's totally mundane, but it's totally vital. Um, well, guess what? I would have thought that this would be like the one sacrosanct um, international treaty, but no, the Trump administration is <laughs> withdraw, even from the international postal agreement. Now, granted, you know they've got some legitimate complaints. One of which being that that there are some anachronistic aspects of that treaty, which give basically give poorer nations a somewhat lower rate on certain kinds of postage, which China has been Chinese. Uh, both governmental and private sector uh, entities have been taken advantage of. It's much, it's cheaper uh, for people in China to send certain kinds of things to the United States than vice versa. And the U.S. reasonably enough has been saying recently, like, hey, like maybe, Fentanyl, for like example. <laughs> oh, come on, Ed, don't be so picky. Yeah, <laughs> no, sorry, no, no. sorry, but, sorry, that was really there, there are, there are, I mean, that that to be fair, that that's right. I mean, there are there are legitimate reasons to say, hey, we need to take another look at the ways in which something that made sense a while ago may not make sense anymore. Um, but the we're taking our ball and going home, which is usually the first reaction of the Trump administration, is probably not the ideal one, that there are, there are ways to work this out through negotiation. So, so I, I, you know, I, I, this is just to add to, to the point that Corey and Ed have made, that I think we do have a presidential administration here that, that is uh, much more reckless in, a, in general with regard to international rules and institutions, rather than taking the approach of, you know, we help shape this. If it's not working for us, let's help fix it, is instead taking the approach, we can do it by ourselves. Goodbye, everyone. See ya. Which in the long run is, is not likely to work in our favor. Um, well, so essentially what you're saying is that um, they're both uh, anti-rule of law and, or libertarian and stupid at the same time, um, which is what you, you started. Yeah, pretty much. But 
Well, Ed, Ed, let me ask you a question. You went to one of those fancy English schools, and all the people I know go to those schools. They like major in like PPE. Did you major in PPE? <laughs> I I did. It was oh, for pretty Ed, poor education. <laughs> yeah, right, and for the rest of you know America out there who are like at a Seven Eleven listening, <laughs> what, what is PPE? What is PPE? It was politics, philosophy, economics. Right. Um, which, you know, as opposed to gel as a sort of unified worldly subject. Um, no, I, I think it's I think it's 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 charmingly British um, to actually, you know, acknowledge that those things are kinetic connected. And in this particular case, they're very connected because when you sort of say, well, why is Trump blowing up all these institutions? What's his philosophy of all of this? You know, it's not just postal unions or the WTO or NATO or uh, trade accords like TPP or the Paris Accords, but one by one in each of the institutions of the government, he has put into place people who are sworn to destroy those institutions. The person at interior hates nature. The person at education hates education. The person at energy doesn't think there should be an energy department and so forth. And so, you know, it's like he, he, he sees the role as destroying these things, which would suggest that his philosophy was nihilism. But, but you know, and that he's a political nihilist. He wants to destroy political institutions. But actually, if you connect the P and the P and the E, it's also, it's, it's also essentially the philosophy of a billionaire or, or a multimillionaire, because the richer you are, the less you need government and the more you see it as an impediment. And so you think, well, this government's been a nuisance for a long time. Let's get rid of it. We'll be able to do what we want. And we don't need these protections, which are really for the weaker um, folks out there. So what do you think it is? Is that he's a rich guy and that makes him a nihilist or um, that he's just stupid? Uh, I think I think he's, you know, long, long held the view that the, the system of global rules is America subsidizing everybody else. You know, to use language he wouldn't he wouldn't use. The, the, the global commons is regulated and um, protected first and foremost, by the United States and American-led order. And that, that means, the commons means, you know, the ability to trade all around the world, um, the, the ability to travel all around the world, to have, to have rules, you know, governing um, flights, uh, as well as postal, um, uh, postal um, rates, to have anti-piracy cooperation, to have a million things that we don't notice that are invisible, that enable um, barter, truck, and trade between peoples. Um, you have to have um, you have to have a system that does that. And generally, no systems are self-creating. You have to have a hegemon that creates it um, and sustains it. And I think Trump sees it um, as a heavy American subsidy. Quite wrongly, he sees it as an American um, subsidy to everybody else. It's actually a system that. Um, has enormously enriched America too, um, and has um, uh, and has enhanced America's power. But anyway, that's how he sees it. But he also, as you say, um, and I think this gets more into the sort of stupidity point that Rosa was talking about. He believes that um, you know deals between diplomats and bureaucracies are bad for business, and you know as a, as a businessman. Um, he doesn't like anything that's bad for business. It it reduces profit maximization. Uh, and so, um, you know, there, there is that side to Trump, which just simply transplants what property developers um, uh, might think. Well, the sort of low end um, sort of casino bankrupting end of the property development community might think constitutes realistic principles of business in the modern world applied to, you know, global economic um, diplomatic relations um, is an extraordinary, extraordinarily stupid what he's doing. Um, you know, I, I would like to sort of think of a politer word from political science, but, you know, Rose is correct. And, and your summary of what Rose has said is, I think, correct. This, this is extraordinarily stupid and self-defeating because uh, when you get into a Hobbesian world, when you get into a dog-eat-dog -dog world, everybody makes less money. 
everybody makes less less money. Um, you know, risk risk is, then rises, and um, and and that and that makes uncertainty um, becomes a much bigger factor, and therefore investment falls, and um, the cost of doing business rises. Can I? So can it I is just... extraordinarily stupid. Can I just add a, a very short thing to that, um, um, which is that there are some parallels uh, in terms of what Trump's doing um, with with Brexit, right? That that part of the benefit of international rules and institutions is just that they save you a whole lot of time and hassle, right? So instead of having to negotiate everything bilaterally with everybody. Uh, you know, and start all over again whenever anything changes. You you have sort of rules of the road that everybody abides by, which may disadvantage a given state on any particular occasion. But when you kind of work it out over the long term, the there's a tremendous savings just in sheer transaction costs. And and so part of what happens, uh, you know, in addition to everything Ed just said, this is a little bit less dramatic. But but you know, you start pulling out of all of these various agreements without, as in similar to Brexit, without really thinking through, well, wait, so what exactly replaces them? And suddenly you discover mm -hmm. that you've got a big problem, that, that, whoops, you know, we don't know how we are, who is China going to deliver the mail, right? It's, it, you know, that all of those issues that you haven't had to think about because you had an agreement in place that, however imperfect, meant that nobody had to think about these things day to day suddenly becomes things that have to get renegotiated from scratch. And I, I think that in many cases, uh, the Trump administration's eagerness to pull out of international agreements at much, much like Brexit has not been accompanied by uh, the hard work of figuring out what replaces it. Well, you know, I think that's, that, you know. So, that, it, what, I, oops, I'm sorry, go ahead, David. No, I was just gonna turn to you and, and, and pose a question um, that you would be sort of well-suited to address. And, and that is, you know, we can call it stupid, but, you know, I think then we, have an obligation to sort of say, well, what kind of stupid and why? And one of the reasons it's so great to have you on these episodes um, and on this on this podcast, Corey, is because in addition to your sunny disposition and your encyclopedic knowledge of St. Louis Cardinal batting averages, <laughs> you have this to remind us that things happened before now. You know that there was history. And, you know, the, <laughs> the thing that, you know, Rosa is getting at here uh, is that Trump has no idea of that. He has no idea why we ended up with this system. He has no idea why we decided to do this instead of what he's suggesting, which we decided, you know, 80, 80 years ago, 100 years ago, was a terrible idea. And, and, you know, if you don't understand history, it's not that you're do necessarily to repeat it, you could actually do worse. Yeah, I think that's right, David. It's possible to do much worse, especially it's possible to do much worse than the history of the last 70 years, which, as Ed pointed out, and you also have been extraordinarily good for American interests. The, you know, we're, we as a country are the children of enlightenment, the our government as it was created was designed to encapsulate the best thinking of the Enlightenment era. Um, and, you know, the joke about our system being designed by geniuses to be run by idiots and that we prove that all of the time. Uh, I still think it is possible to decry the president's approach to the international order without slandering every rich person in the country. And um, here's, here's the other possible them. explanation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would like to say rich. when That's the Titanic what I say. goes down. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, um, not I will concede that point to you, Corey. <laughs> no, no, and I don't want to offend Ed, who's sitting there at, at, at Happy Acres, you know, with yes, Bill the Beast. That's right. We don't want him to send peasants with pitchforks and torches after well, all of us. We do, we do want our rich friends to take pity on us uh, when the apocalypse comes and invite us into their pockets. So. I'd just like to point out there is a large trickle down effect in terms of wealth for all the people I employ to protect me and to feed the wilderness. There's a large trickle down effect. Yeah, I knew you were a conservative deep down, Ed. I just knew it. 
<laughs> okay, back Go to the on. point about Go the on. Trump administration, which yeah. is that, um, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed talking to Europeans about defense spending or about emergent threats that we should band together in order to manage together is that, and this isn't just true of Europeans, but the European security conversation reminds me of it most pointedly, which is that uh, Europeans have been so safe for so long, in particular Germans, now that the uh, frontier of potential hostility has moved to the east of Poland. Um, they have been so safe so long that there's a certain recklessness in the belief that they will always be safe and a, a failure of imagination. The Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe uh, said that, that uh, privilege creates a thick layer of adipose tissue over our sensibilities. And I feel like on security, on the value of the liberal international order, on the importance of trade for expanding the economies of all participating countries, we have all been so safely nestled in the liberal international order for the last 70 years that we forget um, that, as Bob Kagan said a couple of days ago at this conference Rosa and I were at at Princeton, that the world as it is, is actually a terrible place. The liberal international order that the United States and its allies constructed after World War II isn't a state of nature. It's a little garden we created and tended to protect us against the bad things that are the world as it is. And I feel like Trump on trade, um, it could be that he's stupid, and I certainly have no evidence to contradict that theory, but it also could be the general recklessness that I think we're seeing across a whole range of important foreign policy issues because people like us need to do a better job evangelizing the importance of the existing order and Cassandraizing, if I may use that um, word that I just made up, uh, Cassandraizing what the world, if we allow this liberal order to slip out of our grasp, is going to be like and help people understand the consequences of President Trump's recklessness. And so now let's just take a moment uh, to hear a word from a sponsor of uh, Deep State Radio, and we are really grateful for their support. Uh, and that is uh, the podcast Deep Dish on Global Affairs. If you like Deep State Radio, if you like the content, the substance of what we talk about here on Deep State Radio, you will love Deep Dish on Global Affairs. It is an expert explainer podcast that, like we do, goes beyond the headlines on critical global issues. It explores foreign policy news, like you know why the U.S. is bombing Somalia or what's happening in Ukraine's election. And it really gets down to the level uh, uh, of expertise that you can't find uh, on the mainstream news, you can't find on cable television, and that you need if you want to understand what's going on in the world. Deep Dish gives current events broader context, explaining why they matter, and telling you what to watch for as the stories unfold. Uh, we uh, recommend you subscribe to Deep Dish on Global Affairs today, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. Obviously, based on your PPE education, at this is it sounds like a good point for you to say something about the world being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, well done on the complete Hobbesian quote, David. No, 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 no problem. Um, I have Google right in front of me. I, 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 I knew, <laughs> you know, I, I knew nasty, brutish, and short were in there, and I put it in, and the next thing I got was a picture of Danny DeVito, and then I. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a perfect book cover for the next edition of Hobbes' Leviathan. It's a picture of Danny DeVito. <laughs> uh, 
But actually, my, my favorite my favorite Hobbes line, which very much goes to Corey's point about the adipose tissue that accompanies uh, privilege, um, that Hobbes, Hobbes, who was, I, I believe, born on the, the uh, date of the Spanish Armadas, um, and he wrote, fear and I were born twins. Uh, as oh, that's excellent. Him, as explanation for his one. rather dark outlook on life, you know, that, that he grew up in, a, in, a, in an era uh, in which there was terrifying insecurity, um, both both from an international perspective and and, of course, from a domestic perspective at that time. Um, and that that, you know, he came to the conclusion that life is solitary, poor, nasty, British and short uh, as a result of his own lived experiences and and. Um, we have been, all of us have been fortunate enough to, to be born into, into a moment in history and into wealthy and powerful states, um, where by and large, we, we have not had to live with the kind of constant fear, uh, that people like Hobbes, uh, endured. And that's shaped our, our, our imaginations. It shaped our political and moral imaginations in ways that are, that are hard to, recognize sometimes i think well can i can i make a a mildly contrarian point not not to what rosa just said but just to the sort of the general view around um around hobbes and enlightenment um would that be um i can make it relevant what we're discussing about china and you don't even have to make it relevant just go for it yeah fire away well if you're if you're if you're Hobbes born, you know, um, twinned with fear when the Armada is approaching England. Um, you are in an you're in an era where England has executed Brexit 1.0 from Rome, <laughs> um, and Queen Elizabeth is, is of course suffering the consequences or, or dealing rather handling with the consequences of her father's decision to break with Rome um, and to um, go it alone. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, get the kind of retaliation that the Spanish Armada was attempting to visit um, on England and other armies, too. That is uh, so elegantly done, Ed. <laughs> and, and so, well, You're the point good, Ed. <laughs> thank, thank you, Gary. The point I was going to make was to just take the other strand from the Enlightenment. So we have the need for a protective state. Um, but we also have, um, you know, the tradition of skepticism and of questioning our own knowledge and our own ability to forecast what what events will lead to. Um, and I know that, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm a strong opponent of, of Brexit, um, but I think when I hear people on the Remain side of the argument, my side of the world, um, arguing against Brexit, uh, you know, in, in all circumstances, they tend to glamorize and um, beef up how good and effective um, and how rosy the horizons are for the European Union. And that's a huge weakness in their argument because it's just not true. The European Union is in profound trouble. And if Brexit weren't happening, that is what we would be talking about. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I think, you know, there is there is this tendency just to sort of close ranks and say, well, I'm I'm with this team. And so I'm going to argue the case all the way. And I actually I think that that's a sign of weakness. And I think, you know, the, 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 the best arguments to make in favor of Europe, for example, are very pragmatic ones. It's just less bad than leaving. And we well, can influence also, its direction better if we don't. That kind this, of argument. There's also this tendency within politics to try to make things binary because we live in a system with two sides. Um, uh, and And so, you know, you have... The Republicans say, let's blow up Ob- Obamacare. And then you have certain elements of the Democratic Party saying, let's have Medicare for all. When, you know, the actual solution is let's fix Obamacare. You know, it, you could say, let's blow up the WTO. Um, but the actual solution is let's fix what we've got or let's fix the European Union that we've got. Um, but, you know, Corey, and, and then Rosa, I, I, I think Ed's analogy here, even though he was trying to be contrarian, is kind of interesting in that, you know, his Brexit 1.0 actually happened in what I would call the first backlash against globalization, because the great global entity, the first global corporate entity 
that actually had any effect across Europe was the Catholic Church. And it, <laughs> it, it crossed How borders. the Romans? Well, the Romans didn't Indeed. get as far as the Catholic Church. <laughs> um, How about the Visigoths? Uh, All right, okay, 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 okay. Speaking of contrarian. Yeah, the, well, the visit. Yeah, okay. Well, right, we can go on, back David. further. We'll just, we'll, just, we'll, just, we'll just go with the Catholic Church. Yeah, but there, so there was this backlash, which was led by Henry VIII, and, and you had this birth, you, you had a bunch of tumult, and ultimately this uh, doctrine of the idea of the nation state as being preeminent, which took place over a period of, you know, 100, 150 years. But Henry VIII was not actually, you know, advancing a philosophy of the nation state. He just wanted to get laid. And other people made the philosophy around his desire to satisfy his own impulses. And I sort of and he get succeeded. This. He delivered on Brexit 1.0. Well, that's right. But, he you know, did. this he is did. the thing with, you know, Several Trump. Times. Trump sees the, you know, he want, just wants to do what he wants to do. And other people manufacture these kind of things around him. So actually, Corey, Trump is... Henry VIII? I'm sorry, David. It's a super fun analogy, but I have to disagree with some parts of it. Um, I agree that other people were putting uh, elegant religious glosses on the desire of the sovereign of England to produce a male heir in order to hold the kingdom together and prevent the return to It was really completely altruistic. War. <laughs> wasn't altruistic but but it's not clear that he just wanted to get laid there was a political purpose to this um moreover henry the eighth was not a bad religious scholar in his own right um uh so he wasn't as woefully ignorant as donald trump which is the point i was getting to um that the analogy doesn't work because henry the eighth actually had a better sense of what he was doing and was more conscious of the consequences of it than the president of the United States is as the president of the United States pulls apart that greatest American invention, the liberal international order that gets put in place after World War II. By happenstance, I went back and read George H.W. Bush's Europe Whole and Free speech from 1989 the other day. And I had this overwhelming nostalgia for two things. One, uh, the, a reminder of how fast events were changing and how hopeful and scary that felt in 1989 when, when you know, Hungary was tearing down fences, but Germany remained divided. And, and we were all trying to figure out how to foster positive change, right? Whereas now we're not trying to figure out how to foster positive change, and that makes me sad. But the second thing, oh, Lord, I was so homesick for an American president who modestly uh, gave credit where credit was due, whether to the generation that built the liberal international order, the generation that defended it on the ramparts, at a time where, where the possibility of nuclear war was quite high, or the very brave people of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union who were wrenching control away from their governments. And it made me so sad that we have now started talking as though we won the Cold War instead of us doing what Edmund Burke said military force can do, which is freeze a situation while other factors like politics and personal courage um, change the course of history. We, I really, really, really wish that in addition to not breaking up the liberal international order, we would stop thinking we are the only people who ever did anything to advance it. I, I promise I'll stop proselytizing now, David. No, no, you shouldn't stop. I was pretty sure that instead of going to Edmund Burke, you were going to go to the far side. But I, think, <laughs> I could do that if you like. No, no, it I, is one I, of my favorite reference points. No, no, I, I love the fact that you're fluent in both. We only have a minute or two left here, Rosa. And, and in defense of my Henry VIII and, and Donald Trump analogy, you would, you would agree with me that Henry VIII was also fat. 
uh, uh, David, we don't use that term anymore. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry I'm, to have to tell you. We don't body shame our tyrants. No, and, we don't body shame our tyrants. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, we, we, we are left, though, with, with... We could say he would not pass the physical fitness test for admission into the American military, couldn't we, We Rosa? could say that. We, 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 could, we could say that. Yeah, well, that would be ironic, given the lengths he went to to try to avoid passing the physical fitness test for the American <laughs> military. Um, um, well, I, I just... The, the question, I guess, on my mind here, Rosa, is... You know what's going to happen? What's going to happen, back to Ed's article, is there's going to be a deal between the U.S. and China. The Chinese are going to take it because it's pragmatic, but it also advances their strategic goal of undermining the WTO. The U.S. is going to take it because it advances that strategic goal, but Trump will be able to tout it as a win. And it's all going to be masked um, by something I didn't really talk about, which is an agreement by the Chinese to buy $1.X trillion worth of U.S. goods, which Trump will say directly translates into jobs. And that's the only thing the media is going to write about here. And it will be the parallel to the Saudis signing all sorts of defense agreements that they're never actually going to carry through. Right. But they, 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 the idea in sort of making modern foreign policy is Create a headline that the media will swallow so it can obscure the real damage you're doing below. I feel like Ed is a one-man wrecking ball for that theory because the article we have just been talking about him writing is exactly the solution to that problem. Well, Rosa, well, do, you you, think there is, do you think there is a solution <laughs> to that problem? Um, well, we could all get smarter. That would help. Um, That's hilarious. That's a really good one. No, I, I mean, no, I don't. I don't, unfortunately, think that there is a particularly satisfying solution. Like Corey is right, of course. The the best we can do is, you know, Ed, Ed writes articles like he just wrote, and we do podcasts like this, and we we keep pointing this out, um, and we keep we keep also, you know, I I think that. This is sort of beyond the scope of what any of the four of us routinely do, but you know, empowering organizations that work at the grassroots and ground level. We all know that the messenger matters, and that the people who are going to read the Financial Times and read Ed's excellent columns are unfortunately probably not Trump's base. Um, but there are overlaps between Trump's base and the people who are not part of Trump's base. You know, there are overlapping organizational affiliations, there are overlapping media sources, you know, and thinking about ways to to get get information to the messengers who are more likely to make a difference to that group um, to the extent that some some percentage of that group may peel off from him. Um, it's not a not a silver bullet by any means, though. I mean, I would, I would say that there are a lot of people in this country who read the Financial Times who, um, who don't like Trump's, you know, um, the atmosphere, the aura around him, his language, his uh, morals and so forth, but who vote for him, who support him. And, you know, history does bear a lot of cautionary tales in, in regard as to what, what capital does, what business does when it's faced with a choice between its own strong man on the right and a left that it really fears in terms of the punitive tax rates, et cetera, it's going to impose. It will almost always go for the strong man. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I find that um, the, the kind of people who read the FT and the Wall Street Journal um, and other business publications are a really key, key audience here. Um, because if they can be persuaded that actually it's not even good for business, that they're eating their own seed corn here, and that they should look beyond their own noses, they should look a little bit further than the Dow Jones looks. Um, then you know, then you can get then you can get quite big changes. Um, but so far, I see very you know, there's one or two one or two hedge fund managers and private equity billionaires who've raised questions about. Um, 
about the future of capitalism, um, uh, but very, very few. Yeah, very few. And some of those who do, you have to laugh. I saw Jamie Dimon did it, and I nearly choked yeah. on whatever I was eating at the time, considering what a um, rapacious um, uh, example he has set over the past few years, uh, as has his firm. Well, I, you know, that ties into a lot of the news that's been breaking recently. There have been recent studies, uh, polls that have shown that uh, just the people Ed are talking about, Ed is talking about, are fearful of a Democratic Party that might actually start uh, adjusting the tax system a little bit and not in their favor. Uh, and that could, of course, support Trump, which could be in their short term, but not their long term interest, as Ed points out. We'll have to track on it. We'll also have to follow up on what Rosa suggests is the cure for this, which is that everybody out there read Ed's columns, read what Rosa Corey <laughs> write, and, and, and of course, subscribe to Deep State Radio at the DSRnetwork.com, thus enabling us to put out more podcasts like this, which ultimately will uh, save the day much as Arya Stark did with that swift move of dropping her um, Valerian steel dra dagger from her left hand. Girl's to her right got hand. game. Thank you. Yeah, no, the girl has game. And, and Ed, I, I, I did note you said you haven't watched Game of Thrones. Um, and, uh, and you should, because it will give you a lot of insight, uh, if not into the future of um, world politics, uh, I think into the future of how Democratic Party politics are going to play out over the next six years. And I believe, I believe you, you think it's lit, lit like Rembrandt. Is that correct? Thank, thank you for saying that for the tweeter out there who wanted to hear you say those words. Um, the, the <laughs> Can I also say... Can I also say aluminium urinal? Yes, no, that's going to be a ringtone, <laughs> people. You know, people are going to want Ed Luce saying, hello, uh, this is Ed Luce, and I'm at my aluminium urinal. Please leave a message at the phone. I feel like it's our version of Carl Castle from NPR recording the message on your exactly. answering machine. And wait, wait, don't tell me. Exactly. Correct. Exactly. And by the way, if you don't listen to Deep State Radio, listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Those are the only two things you actually need. Um, all right, folks. Um, thank you very much for this. Thank you, Corey. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Ed. Join us again later this week for another episode. Uh, join our other programs, including uh, the, the soon-to-be-launched uh, unredact Unredacted from DSR with uh, uh, Philippe Rhinus and Molly Jung Fast and Emily Brandwin and uh, lots of other good stuff we've got coming. Go to the DSRnetwork.com to look it up. See you soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.